Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 46, Deuteronomy chapter 32, the second continuation. It's always been the chief purpose of Torah Class to demonstrate that far from the Old Testament being abolished or irrelevant, it's alive. It's vital to our understanding of God and His plan, and it's very contemporary to our day. No section of the Torah better exemplifies that principle than this song of Moses here in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So we're going to continue going slowly and thoroughly through this short section of Deuteronomy that some Bible scholars have called a canon within a canon. So full of meaning and instruction and theological value it is. Now this affords me a time to draw together some divine principles that we've learned along the way. We have learned during our time together that all the laws and commands of Torah stand upon the foundation of the Ten Commandments. And that the Ten Commandments have as their foundation the fundamental instruction to love Yehovah, our God, with all our mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. In this same way, so as God's immense, complex, in many ways inscrutable plan for mankind's redemption founded upon His justice system. And His justice system boils down to curses on the one hand and blessings on the other. Curses for those who hate and disobey Him, blessings for those who love and obey Him. Okay? God's justice system forms the basis of what every believer counts on for our redemption. When Jesus Christ went to His death, it was so that God's justice system was satisfied. And it was this same justice system that's on display in the Song of Moses. So let's get our bearings before we go forward by remembering that this Song of Moses is to stand as a witness against Israel for all time. This powerful poem that speaks of God's wrath and mercy is not a temporary or fading edict that the Lord is enacting. But the modern church knows precious little of the content or the meaning of this song because it has tended to distance itself from Israel and from the Torah for more than 1800 years, refusing to take seriously God's laws and commands and then ultimately erasing Israel and the law from our thoughts and our theology. Thus, we tend to dismiss this prophetic song of Moses as not for us. All right, or at least not, at least it was for a past dispensation. Okay, and this mindset is primarily the result of Christianity looking at any divine scriptural pronouncement upon Israel and believing that if the pronouncement is a curse, then Israel bears that curse alone, and if it's a pronouncement of blessing, then the church has appropriated that blessing in place of Israel. What a deal! Okay, we've studied 
many New Testament chapters that not only dismiss such an erroneous and damaging doctrine, but as with Romans 11, we find that the only path available for Gentiles to become part of Yeshua's so-called church, ecclesia, is by essentially becoming something that the Apostle Paul calls spiritual or true Israelites. Not in place of earthly, physical Israel, today's Jews, but alongside earthly, physical Israel. Further, the well-known biblical metaphor of uh, grafting in a branch from another but a similar tree, Gentiles, okay, into the original tree, Israel, is used to demonstrate this spiritual transformation that a human being goes through when he chooses to follow Christ and to accept his salvation All is the fulfillment of God's covenants to Israel and Israel alone. Now here's the thing. All throughout our study since Genesis 1-1, I have coined and used the term the reality of duality to, as best as I can, illustrate this mysterious connection and parallelism between the spiritual world and the physical world the heavenly and the earthly, the tangible and the intangible, the seen and the unseen. And that parallelism is front and center within the Song of Moses. From a broader view, what we find is that physical history and God's heavenly plan are circular. There is a starting point where everything was of the spiritual dimension only. And then out of that developed a physical dimension. And then from that time forward, the two dimensions, the spiritual and the physical, parallel one another, like the the right and the left sides of a pair of railroad tracks. That is, both are needed. They run side by side. They're not physically joined. Rather, they must, by nature and function, be distinct from one another. And yet, they come from the same beginning, follow the same path, and arrive at the same point at the same time for the same ultimate goal. What we also find is that while all existence began as purely spiritual, the Word was with God before the beginning of the physical universe. We're told that. When mankind was yet but a thought in our Lord's mind, and when His laws and commands were divine ideals active only in the spiritual world, because as of yet, there was no physical world. Eventually, those spiritual ideals transformed into physical realities upon Yehovah's creation of the universe. The idea of a created population of beings who could choose to love God or not were at one time represented only by the angels, perhaps some other types of spiritual beings as well. 
all, of course, of the spiritual world. But then a parallel population of beings called human beings were created, the first being Adam. However, humans were physical and there in our essence. So now we have a parallel set of beings, angels of the spiritual world, humans of the physical world. But don't both populations exist simultaneously? Both were created to serve God. Both were given enough freedom to choose to side with or against the Lord and to stay with Him or leave Him by their own wills, by our own wills. But it gets even more mysterious. Because just as angels can at times manifest a physical side, even though their natural state is as spiritual beings, so does physical man have a spiritual side, even though our natural state is as a physical being. And we find in God's plan of redemption that while the spiritual and the physical realms are infinitely different, yet, over time, the plan is that in some mysterious way, these two realms are going to eventually merge. As we follow the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we see that in the beginning all things were out of the spiritual sphere and then the physical sphere was added but kept separated from the spiritual. In fact, barriers were set up between the spiritual and the physical. The, then the spiritual law that was practiced in heaven was one day given to physical mankind on Mount Sinai, the Torah. However, the law on earth was practiced as primarily a series of physical rituals, traditional observances that only mimicked and illustrated their heavenly origin because at that time man had no capacity to do much more than that. In God's time, the purpose of the law for mankind began to be unveiled as it made a definite turn away from the purely physical and the purely earthly ways it was being practiced and then towards a return to its original spiritual heavenly form upon the advent of Messiah and shortly thereafter the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in men. The monumental events of Yeshua bring the, bringing the physical law to a spiritual fulfillment and then the Spirit of God indwelling physical man marked significant and recognizable milestones in the as yet unfinished process of the spiritual and the physical realms merging. At some time in our future, these will become one united realm. The kingdom of God that we read about in the Bible and hope for in our hearts is actually that united physical and spiritual realm that's coming. Once the Holy Spirit became present in men, it was said that God's kingdom 
the united realm of the spiritual and the physical was now present on earth. The wild-haired John the Baptist went around pronouncing that the kingdom of God was at hand just prior to Yeshua's coming. Yet even today, it's a kingdom that's not fully gestated. It's a kingdom that is becoming. It is a kingdom that is partially but not fully formed. And currently, it is represented by physical humans, believers who are in a process of being perfected by God so that we can fully merge with the perfect spiritual. It's a process whereby our natural physical essence and being are becoming more spiritual and less physical. In fact, Holy Scripture tells us of a time in the future when humans will have an altogether different kind of body and essence than we have today. It'll be a spiritual body, for lack of a better term. Okay, That's impervious to time, so it's impervious to decay. Very similar to the angels. It's a kind of body that will be able to travel around this eventually merged world of the physical and the spiritual realms. And this is because it's the circle of man's history and God's redemptive history finally, after many thousands of years, comes to its fullest meaning and completion. We essentially arrive back to the starting point when it all existed, that everything was spiritual in nature, when there was but a single realm that all beings existed in, not separate spiritual and physical ones, and before there was such a thing as evil and sin and death. Now I took you on this path to start things off today because I want you to think long and hard about what the Song of Moses is really all about. I want you to understand why it is that some of the greatest Christian and Jewish theological minds have spent lifetimes of study centered on the unveiling of the depths of only the final four chapters of Deuteronomy. What fascinates me most, however, is how the predictions of the Song of Moses culminate for us in the book of Revelation. And I say this not as some uplifting sermon rhetoric or as a good analogy. I want to show it to you. Open your Bibles to Revelation 14. 14. We're going to start reading in Revelation 14, 14, and then continue on into Revelation 15. Revelation 14. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we'll be on page 1546. I'm going to read Revelation 14, 14, then go into up to uh, Revelation 15, 4. Then I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. Sitting on the cloud was someone like a son of man, with a gold crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand, and another angel came out of the temple and shouted to the one sitting in the cloud, Start using your sickle to reap. 
Because the time to reap has come. The earth's harvest is ripe. And the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And then out from the altar went yet another angel who was in charge of the fire. And he called in a loud voice to the one with the sickle, Use your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because they are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle down into the earth and gathered the earth's grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's fury. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridles for 200 miles. And then I saw another sign in heaven, a great and wonderful one, Seven angels with the seven plagues that are like the final ones. Because with them God's fury is finished. I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Those defeating the beast, its image and the number of its name were standing by the sea of glass. Holding harps which God had given them. They were singing... The song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and wonderful are the things you have done, Adonai, God of heaven's armies. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Adonai, who will not fear and glorify your name, because you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. What is it that Revelation 15.3 says is being sung by those who are described as God's armies as they defeat the beast, its image, and those who took the number of its name? Two songs. The song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, exactly what we're studying, and the song of the Lamb. Those two songs. Wouldn't hurt to start memorizing them now. The idea, of course, is that God's warriors are singing the song of Moses as a victory song and as a remembrance of God's age-old promise of redemption and judgment that were made long before Moses passed away. So now we see that the song of Moses is not passé once Messiah came, or even in our day, or even at the time of Armageddon, or is it only for Israel? Rather, it applies to the whole world, all the nations. And at this event in Revelation 15, the song of Moses applies to the apostate world that has decided to be against God and has instead is thrown in with the satanically controlled Antichrist, the beast. And as the song of Moses explains, there will be pitiless destruction for those who oppose God and His people. There will be unlimited mercy and salvation for those who stand with God, who are His people. And ironically, God will use the wicked 
as a tool to punish his people in order that they return to him and be saved. And then he'll turn around and destroy those same wicked for having harmed his people in the punishment process. Now I've taught you over the years that it's a biblical fact that God's prophecies happen and then they happen again. Sometimes more than once. And this is because in the circular nature of history that repeats itself. Okay? The song of Moses predicts the three exiles of Israel, but then as the process of God transforming the world to the kingdom of God moves along in time, so does the song of Moses transform to deal not only with physical Israel, but with spiritual Israel, as mysterious as that is, all right, as well. And the Song of Moses explains not only the destruction of those physical populations, physical people, physical nations who oppose God, but on another level it explains the destruction of those populations of evil spirit beings, demons, fallen angels who oppose him. But we are also witnessing in the Song of Moses God's discipline upon his people and God allowing his people to walk away from him if they choose. Now this is also prophetic. And like the destruction of God's enemies and the exiles of Israel, this is going to repeat and finally come to a complete fulfillment at the end of days. Now, I hope you can receive this. We've often been taught that God won't punish His own, or that He will, nor will He allow His own to walk away from Him. That's, there's utterly no spiritual backing to that claim. There's no scriptural backing to that claim. It's just a man-made doctrine. It's a tradition that gives us a false comfort. The Song of Moses makes us witnesses to redeemed people who walk away from their redemption. It says so, plainly. We are warned over and over again in the New Testament against our doing the same thing because the consequences will be the same. God punishes those who have been His, but they fall away. But this is done in hope that His people will come back to Him when they've borne enough pain and finally understand their folly. But if they don't, then they don't. Their fate, even eternally, is sealed. It's their choice. Not even God's own servants become mindless robots that lose the freedom to choose any choice. Goodness, even the angels in heaven who enjoy a modestly less amount of freedom than we do had the choice to serve God or to rebel as is explained by the existence of Satan and his armies. 
Can anyone keep you from accepting Messiah? No. Can anyone, can any demon, can any thing block your path to salvation? No. The New Testament says no. Conversely, can anyone or anything force you into accepting Messiah? Nope. The choice either way is always on the individual. No one outside that individual can make that choice for you. And it says in the book of John, no one and no thing can take you, snatch you against your will from God's hand. But you do have a choice. Obviously, the reference to no one and no thing means somebody other than you. In the same way that somebody, nobody other than you can block your path to God. Nobody. But you can. You know, we love to talk about our freedom in Christ, our unfettered free wills. But does that freedom and free will come to a decided end when it comes to the ability to walk away from God? As opposed to when we first had the freedom to walk into His loving arms. Jesus' brother, James, who was the head of the church before the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, reiterates this principle in his only recorded letter to the church congregation of Jerusalem. In James 5.19, he says, My brothers, my brothers, if one of you wanders away from the truth, and someone causes him to return, you should know that whoever turns that sinner from his wandering path will save him from death. And it will cover many sins. The brothers in this passage are, of course, believers. That's the only people being addressed in this letter. The one who wandered from the truth had the truth at one time. You can't wander away from some place you're not already at. The person who turns from God back to being a sinner, according to James, and the death he saved from is certainly not his physical death, because saved or condemned, all men are appointed to die once. Nothing's different there. This death is referring to the spiritual eternal death. The death of the unrighteous. We have in these words of James the example of a Christian brother who knew God's truth. He turned from it. He turned away from his redemption of grace and is on a path of spiritual death unless somehow another brother can get him to come to his senses and return to God. Nothing could be more straightforward. 
This wandering brother is doing what exactly what's being spoken of and predicted in the Song of Moses, which we're going to sing in Revelation. So I guess it hasn't gone away, has it? Certainly he has an opportunity to come back to God. Obviously. But he will die as a sinner with no hope unless he does, regardless of his previous status. He once knew the truth. Let's resume our study of this incalculably deep and relevant song of Moses at verse 22. We're going to do some bite-sized chunks this week. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 32. We're going to start at verse 22, which is on page mm, 236. Deuteronomy 32, verse 22. For my anger has been fired up. It burns to the depths of Sheol, devouring the earth and its crops, kindling the very roots of the hills. I will heap disasters on them, use up all my arrows against them. Fatigued by hunger, they'll be consumed by fever and bitter defeat. I'll send them the fangs of wild beasts, the poison of reptiles crawling in the dust. Outside the sword makes parents childless, inside there's panic. As young men and girls alike are slain, sucklings, graybeards together. I considered putting an end to them, erasing their memory from the human race. But I feared the insolence of the enemy, feared that their foes would mistakenly think, we ourselves have accomplished this, Adonai had nothing to do with it. They are a nation without common sense, utterly lacking in discernment. If they were wise, they could figure it out, understand their destiny. After all, how can one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to rout unless their rock sells them to their enemies, unless Adonai hands them over. For our enemies have no rock like our rock, even they can see that. Rather, their vine is from the vine of Saddam, from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are poisonous, their clusters are bitter, their wine is snake poison, the cruel venom of vipers. Isn't this hidden with me, stored, sealed in my storehouses? Vengeance and payback are mine for the time when their foot slips. For the day of their calamity is coming soon. Their doom is rushing upon them. Yes, Adonai will judge his people, taking pity on his servants, when he sees that their strength is gone, that no one is left slaver free. And then he will ask, where are their gods? The rock in whom they trusted who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let him get up and help you. Let him protect you. See now that I, yes, I am he. There's no God beside me. I put to death, I make alive, I wound, I heal. No one saves anyone from my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear... As surely as I am alive forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and set my hand to judgment, I will render vengeance to my foes. 
I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. My sword will devour flesh. The blood of the slain and the captives, flesh from the wild-haired heads of the enemy. Sing out, you nations, about his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will render vengeance to his adversaries and make atonement for the land of his people. Moses came and proclaimed all the words of this song in the hearing of the people and of Hosea the son of Nun. And when he had finished speaking all of these words to Israel, he said to them, Now take heart all the words of my testimony against you today so that you can use them in charging your children to be careful to obey all the words of this Torah. This is not a trivial matter for you. On the contrary, it's your life. Through it, you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. And that same day Adonai said to Moses, Now get up, go up into the Gavarim range to Mount Nebo, into the land of Moab across from Jericho, and look out over the land of Canaan, which I am giving the people of Israel as a possession, because on the mountain you are ascending you will die. You will be gathered to your people, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. The reason for this is that you broke faith with me. There among the people of Israel at the Mervat Kadesh Spring in the Sin Desert. You failed to demonstrate my holiness there among the people of Israel. So you will see the land from a distance, but you won't enter the land I'm giving to the people of Israel. This first part speaks of the insatiable fire of God's anger and, and his wrath upon Israel. Let me put that in proper context so we can be clear. In a sense, Jehovah is declaring war upon his own redeemed people because they've now shunned their redemption in favor of adding a few false gods and non-gods to their worship. I don't mean to be repetitive. But we need to grasp, Israel didn't completely renounce God in the sense that they said, I don't believe Jehovah is my God. Rather, you see, the usual route to apostasy was that they kept right on professing their allegiance to the God of Israel, still observing his festivals and sacrifices and ritual baths and so on, to some degree. But at the same time, they began incorporating other gods. Adding some non-authorized worship practices into their lives. They mixed and matched. Little this, little that. Their mindset was apparently not to burn any bridges. Let's give the God of Israel, and each of these gods, just enough of our allegiance so we can keep all of our options open. Well, the Lord stymied that. He said to do such a thing is to abandon him in his eyes. You know what? He's the sole judge of who he accepts as righteous. And not what each Israelite thought 
was their status before him. That was just irrelevant. You know, we do well to remember that in the New Testament, when it draws this distinction between Israel and the world, or between believers and the world, the world represents the wicked and the apostate. The world is those people and things that do not belong to and do not obey God. And we are warned as believers. We are no longer of this world, even though we are in it. And because of that divine principle, we are not to join ourselves to the things of this world. We are to stay separate and be joined exclusively to God. The world is just the New Testament way of saying those who don't belong to God. Or in Hebrew, lo ami. No people, not my people. Therefore, as believers, when we begin to mix and match our union in Messiah with the ways of the world, we become lo ami. Not his people. We are abandoning God in his eyes. The most recent example of brazen apostasy of some believers is this new prosperity doctrine that's all the rage. There's nothing wrong with the world seeking wealth as its reason for existing and its number one goal because they don't have much else to hope for. But when a believer sets aside God's laws and commands for the express purpose of funneling everything towards gaining wealth. That's a problem. Worse, though, is for the institutional church to make gaining wealth as not only a supposed holy endeavor, but also as the scorecard for determining the spiritual health of the local church body or the individual believer. In fact, the entire Bible from beginning to end goes to great length to explain that while material wealth isn't wrong in itself, the material wealth is not God's definition of prosperity, nor are the wicked always poor and the righteous always materially rich. So every aspect of the prosperity doctrine that's preached in our nation is virtually the opposite of biblical principles, and we need to shun it. In our last lesson, we discussed this reference to God's wrath as being a fire that burns to the depths of Sheol, and that this is without doubt, at least on one level, a reference to hell. Further, that it is the Lord who both kindled and now stokes the fires of hell because they are there for him to use for the destruction of the wicked. Satan did not build hell to destroy himself. As verse 23 makes so plain, I will heap disasters on them. Folks, here's another common doctrine we need to re-examine. I've heard it said ad nauseum that God does not cause evil or calamity to befall his people. It's Satan who does that. Because God's only a God of love. Well, you won't find that in the Holy Scripture. 
Another standard doctrine is, is the one that comes to God's redeemed, you and me. That his only punishment ever might be to just allow natural catastrophes to happen to us that he might have supernaturally blocked if we weren't being disciplined. Well, again, that simply doesn't reflect what the Bible says. The Song of Moses is but one of many places in the Bible that makes it clear, I, the Lord, me, I will cause calamity to come on those who rebel against him. Worshipper, non-worshipper alike. And of course, here in the Song of Moses, we get a listing of just what the Lord will cause to happen. And it's even equated to the Lord using up all of his arrows, shooting them at his people, this time Israel. Shooting an arrow is not a naturally occurring disaster. you got to think about it. It's done in anger. It's meant to harm. And God full well means to harm his people when they fall away from him to the degree and manner that Israel did. He says he's going to visit them with horrible famines, deadly plagues. That Israel's former promised land will be overrun with dangerous and poisonous creatures. And in addition, their enemies will attack them. The terror of it all will be so great that everyone, infants, young people, unmarried girls, the elderly, will literally die of fright and anxiety. We don't have time to go there right now. But check out the middle chapters of Revelation as the beast does his dirty work. And then afterwards, as God pours out his wrath in the 21 judgments, the seven seal, seven bowl, seven trumpet judgments. And we get exactly this same picture as in the Song of Moses, using nearly identical words. So here we have the downside, (laughs) the God's justice system. Here in the Song of Moses, we have the curses of the law playing out. Just as in Revelation, we also see the curses of the law running their course. Justice is not justice if there's no right and no wrong. If there's only mercy, never punishment, where's the justice? Don't ever think that God's justice system has given way to a grandfatherly wink and nod at sin and rebellion, whether for believer or pagan. But at verse 26, we begin to see the other side of the justice coin. The side that's the opposite side from wrath. Verse 26 shows us that side of God that we probably all wish was the only side of Him that there is, mercy and love. There we're told that God considered wiping Israel out entirely, but He decided not to because of His concern that the enemy He sends after Israel will give itself the credit for victory. In other words, while mercy and love are being displayed to a degree, it happens more as a natural result of the Lord salvaging his reputation. And this is a theme we see on numerous occasions in the scripture. As but one example, 1 Samuel 12 says, for the sake of his great name, his reputation, he will never abandon 
completely as people. The point of this is that the Lord has a dual purpose in visiting his wrath upon Israel. Purpose number one, punish his people, Israel, for their unfaithfulness to him with the hope that this discipline will cause them to return to righteousness. Purpose number two is to demonstrate his power and omnipotence to the other nations of the earth. If he allowed the attacking nation to take the credit, then the fear is that other nations wouldn't see that Israel's demise was God's doing. Thus the nations would think him weak and unable to defend Israel as their God. Rather than powerful and almighty and able to wield his power over all nations and all things, God's name and his holiness supersedes everything. In verse 28, it's ironic that whereas a few verses earlier, Moses said that Israel no longer had any common sense or they wouldn't have abandoned God, now he applies the same thing to Israel's enemies. That if they had any wisdom, any wisdom at all, they'd know that they were just a tool in Jehovah's hand. It's just as Moses warns Israel that when they prosper because of the Lord's blessing, they shouldn't congratulate themselves for their good fortune as though they are their own masters. Rather, said the Lord, these nations that will feel pulled towards attacking Israel ought to ask themselves, how is it that they could have accomplished such a thing when in reality, at whatever this time is, Israel was bigger and stronger? Interesting. The enemy should have suspected, it says, that Israel's rock, Tzur, the mountain of their salvation, Jehovah, simply gave Israel up. He turned them over to their enemies. Why should they think that? Because the enemy's so-called rock, their god, is of no equal to the God of Israel. And by now it all ought to be self-evident. So up to this point in the Song of Moses, the Lord has first stated what he has done for Israel, then next how they committed adultery against him, unfaithful, and after that, how he's going to cause great calamities upon Israel as a punishment for their unfaithfulness. This punishment will include famines, wars, diseases, crop failures, and finally exile from the promised land at the hand of an attacking enemy. Next, the Song of Moses explains that the Lord decided that for the sake of his own reputation, he wasn't going to do what Israel rightly deserved, which is to be wiped out and never to be considered a people again. Now in verse 32, now that the enemies of Israel have attacked them, mocked them, boasted that it was by their own might that they've conquered Israel, God decides to judge the enemy for being so merciless to his people and so oblivious to the sovereignty of the God of the universe. So the Lord has determined that the enemy that he has used to strike Israel will suffer the same fate as the people of Sodom 
and Gomorrah. Now it's interesting to me that what's being described in verse 32 through 34 is this. The same grapevines and fields in Canaan that produced abundant and healthy food for Israel now is going to produce nothing but bad for the conquering horde. The poisonous grapes reference is a metaphor, not literal. The grapevines were not literally going to produce snake poison. Okay, It's a simple fact of history that after Joshua led Israel into Canaan, from that time forward, whenever Israel was exiled, the Holy Land deteriorated rapidly. The vines and orchards of the promised land stopped producing. The fields became swamps in some areas and hard dry land in other areas. And the pasture lands couldn't support nearly as many cattle and sheep as they did for the Hebrews. The occupiers enjoyed the fine grapes, the fruits and the olives and such that Israel had cultivated for a while. But in no time at all, the deterioration set in and Israel basically became a place suited only for nomads and for merchants to wander through and later for armies to congregate because of its strategic location between the African and Asian continents and as a trade route crossroads. One can see pictures going back to the 1800s when photography was first invented of the lands of Israel that at one time were lovely and fruitful. But at the time of the photograph, that land was occupied mostly by Arabs and it was nearly barren and lifeless. One can also read accounts of the Crusaders' disappointment at the condition of the place upon their arrival and their struggle to make individual plots of land given to them as by the Pope as a reward for their participation in the Crusade to make it usable for food production. After World War One, as many Jews started emigrating to Palestine, as it was called, to start a new life away from the rampant anti-Semitism of Europe, they arrived to a place where farming and ranching was nearly impossible at first. But in a relatively short time, the deserts bloomed, the swamps became fields of wheat and barley, the orchards and the vineyards were replanted and tended, and Israel has today become a net provider of food to the surrounding nations. In fact, the Gaza Strip that was not so long ago turned over to the Palestinians was one of the prime farming areas in all of Israel. But since that turnover, food now has to be imported into the Gaza for those Palestinians to survive because they can't grow enough in the rapidly deteriorating fields and orchards. Naturally, the blame is laid at Israel's feet, as illogical as that sounds. But in an ironic sort of way, they're right. Because when God's people are not on God's land, the land goes fallow for those who do not belong there. 
We'll stop here for tonight and begin at verse 34 next time.